Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for tonight. Once again, a chance, opportunity, sovereign gift from you to be able to open your word together, to be able to think through um, what your word says, to challenge our own hearts, our own minds, to stretch us, that we might understand you more, that we might know you more, that we might be able to serve you as we are commanded to, without any hindrance. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what it tells us. Thank you for what you reveal about yourself and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to return again tonight to our study of the doctrine of the atonement. <clears throat> Several years ago when I got saved, I, I struggled with several doctrines that the Scriptures taught, but one was the atonement. I didn't know that I struggled with that. I just seemingly thought what I believed to be uh, evident for all people that since God was who God says He is, since His character is a God of love, then there is the reality that God must uh, at least put out there the idea or the reality that He is going to save all people. And we come across verses in the Scriptures that seemingly indicate to us that there is a salvation at least in potential for all people, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe upon Him should have eternal life. Or verses like even in Second Peter, where it is not His desire that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. And we read verses like that, and we seem to have our mind challenged as to the reality that if God isn't at least giving the opportunity for all to be saved in some sense, then God is somehow unfair. Of course, this argument was looming large back in the 1500s when there were theological debates going on between Jacob Arminius and John Calvin. And of course, we know the argument as it was synthesized by the followers of Jacob Arminius, as we know it today, as the five points of Calvin or Calvinism. And we we understand it under the acronym of TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. And those stand for doctrines that they were arguing at the time, or at least that John Calvin was giving an answer to because Jacob Arminius was saying that the Bible said these certain things. And of course, Calvin argued from Scripture concerning total depravity, which is the T. He argued from Scripture unconditional election, which is the U. He argued limited atonement, uh, irresistible grace. And then, as I heard many of you even testify tonight in your own testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's doing in your life, this perseverance of your life or the preservation of the saints. And those doctrines have been tenets of the faith and biblical doctrine over the years, and yet it seems that most struggle with the issue of the atonement, whether it is an limited atonement or whether it is an unlimited atonement. And of course, we understand what atonement is. Atonement, simply biblically speaking, is a covering, a covering for 
um, a protection, if you will, from uh, wrath that would be brought upon us because of who God is. God is the judge of all people. And if you sin against God, then for therefore you are under judgment. And so uh, atonement simply is that. It's a covering, a shielding of sinners from the outworking of the wrath of God. And we have spent some time talking about that because of what the Bible says and how seemingly it seems to confuse people as to the extent or the the uh, sufficiency and efficacy of the atonement. And we began to look at it not on the basis of asking the question, for whom did Christ die? That's how most people would approach the atonement, the idea that did Christ die for just some people or did he die for all people in an actuality? And most people try to enter the argument about the atonement or the discussion about the atonement in that way. We've been approaching it from this aspect to answer the question from the aspect of what did Christ accomplish in his atonement? And thereby, if we understand what he accomplished in his atonement, then we can answer that question even more clearly as to whom did Christ die for. And so we were looking at these realities and we began to look at them from the terminology of scripture when it comes to the doctrine of salvation or the doctrine of really the atonement and the covering of Christ. And the first term we began to look at was this term redemption. We had said early on that if man has to be reconciled to God, if man requires an atonement because there's something separating him with God, what is it that's separating him that the atonement must take care of? And we, we talked about those three areas, the reality of man being a slave to sin, man being a slave to Satan, and man being under the wrath of God or guilty in God's judgment system. So Christ's atoning work for it to take care of anything, it had to at least, by the very nature of it, take care of those things because those were barriers that we had as Christians or as people between us and God. If we were going to have actual freedom through the atonement of Jesus Christ from our sins, then Christ's death had to deal with the slavery to sin, the slavery to Satan. As Ephesians chapter 2 says, we were under the prince of the power of the air as well as the reality of the wrath of God being on all men, as John 3.36 says. And so we saw from the term redemption that redemption deals with the idea of buying someone back. And we went at length into the Old Testament, into the book of Ruth, and saw the reality of the idea of a kinsman redeemer. The buying back of someone from a slave market or from uh, poverty, if you will, from someone who was a relative, a family member who had the means and the willingness to do it, to buy them out of the slave market. And so that was the idea of redemption. And this is what uh, redemption meant in the Old Testament, it always was a familial issue. It had the all of the ramifications of being part of a family. It had to be a family member. It had to be someone in the family who had means to do it and the willingness to do it, which we saw in Boaz, in Ruth, uh, in the book of Ruth. 
And so it dealt with the slavery to sin. And then, of course, we also saw it dealing with the slavery to Satan. Because in uh, we, we turned, you can just go there for a moment, back into John chapter 8, just to kind of renew our memory, refresh our memory. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, if God, verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me. Because I proceed forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth. And because there is no truth in him, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar. He is the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. And then Jesus goes on and says, which one of you convicts me of sin? I speak truth. Why do you not believe me? If you're not going to convict me of sin, the only other option is that I speak truth. And if you're not going to say I'm speaking truth, then obviously I'm sinning. But if you can't say I'm sinning, then I'm speaking truth. That's the dilemma they're stuck in. And he says, he who is of God hears God. Here's the words of God. This is the reason you don't hear me. So right there, you have the reality declared about the condition of all men. This is the condition into which we are born. We either belong to the devil or we belong to, to God as Christians. We're all born into the condition of sin. We're all born as sinners, and yet God saves. And so we are either slaves of Satan or we, because of faith, now are slaves of God. And according to Genesis 2, because of our creation, we know that all men by nature belong to the devil because of the fall. So how does a person come to belong to God and thereby have a new nature, right? We, we talked about that. The answer to that is that first word, redemption, redemption, the purchase of the Redeemer. The Redeemer purchases us at a price of redemption. And Jesus Christ paid the actual price. The Bible clearly declares that. He paid the price of himself for an actual people, not a potential group of people, but for an actual group of people that were those called the elect, the chosen. We see this throughout even the Pauline epistles as he's writing to the chosen, the elect. Those who would come from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, and it was accomplished, that, that purchasing of them was accomplished by means of an actual redemption. So when we think about the atonement, we have to think about redemption, because it's through redemption that you and I are no longer slaves of sin. It's Christ purchasing us from the slave market of sin. It's through redemption that you and I are no longer slaves of Satan. But now... Also, there's an actual redemption that the Christian has that, that buys us out of the, the slavery to the wrath of God, the consequence of the very sin. Redemption breaks that barrier. It breaks the barrier of the, 
what stood between us and God, His justice system, His wrath against us because of our sin. Since He's the judge throughout the whole Scriptures, and at the end time, all people will see what they have done with His commands. All people will stand before holy God. The Word of God tells us that because we're in Christ, Christ has stood the the judgment of God on our behalf. He has atoned for our sin. He has paid the price. The only judgment left for the Christian is to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ, and be, be handed the rewards for what we've accomplished in the kingdom of God as we have served Him. There is no judgment for our sinfulness as others will be judged. This is redemption. Christ's death actually redeems His people by freeing them from the penalty, the punishment that God has on them because of sin. In fact, here's what it says, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. We ought to put this verse into our memory. In Christ, or in Him, it says, we have redemption through His blood. What's the implication of redemption? The forgiveness of sins, Paul says. So in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. And what is that? The forgiveness of sins. In other words, freedom from the penalty of guilt because of sin. In other words, by the actual payment of Christ on the cross, God's chosen, God's elect, are released from the necessity to pay for their own sin. The price has been paid. And therefore, the barrier of slavery to sin, the barrier of slavery to Satan, the barrier of the justice system of God standing against us has been completely removed. So we have, as Christians, actual freedom. We have freedom. We have freedom to do what God has created us to do. We have freedom to serve Him as He has designed us to serve Him, as He has created us to serve Him. And that came through actual redemption. When Christ died on the cross, He was redeeming in time what God had already orchestrated, planned, and declared in eternity past. So, When God declared it, it was as good as if it was accomplished. And in time, Christ Christ carried out the act. So by the necessity of Christ, we have been actually redeemed. Now tonight I want to just kind of, that kind of brings us up in a rapid fashion to where we were over the last couple times we were together, I don't know how many weeks ago. Tonight I want to look at another term that deals with the atonement that helps us answer the question that we have been asking, and that is, what did Christ accomplish in His death? And that is the term reconciliation. Reconciliation. We've already thought through the idea of redemption. You can go back and hear those 
ask the guys in the back to cut you a CD or whatever it is to to hear those things. I don't think we put them on at least YouTube or whatever, wherever the live stream goes. We don't put them on that. They may be on our on our uh, website, but but we found out in that that redemption, right, is in the context, just as a reminder of a family matter. It is something within the family, which is why the Bible speaks of Christ and we are co-heirs with Christ. We are in the same family. It was a matter whereby redemption, whereby one relative of that person uh, bought their freedom. So redemption was always at a price, and it was always an actual payment, and it was actually accomplished uh, what it accomplished what it was actually set out to do. It freed that person in a real way. So Christ's death actually redeems. I, I can't emphasize that enough. When we think about the atonement, when we think about whether it's limited or unlimited, how it's usually framed in theological circles today, you must think of it in, in the terms of that idea first. Did it redeem people in an actual way? And the reality is from Scripture is that it absolutely has redeemed people. It has accomplished forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1 verse 7. So it was from God, Christ redeems, pays a penalty upon which God had placed upon us. But what about reconciliation? Because it's another very important word when we think about the atonement. The death of Christ did more than simply to redeem us, although that is a massive thing, right? It bought us from slavery to sin, slavery to Satan. It it took care of the wrath of God upon us, as we will see in in another word that accomplishes that as well uh, next time. But, but it did more than just redeem us. It did more than just release us from the domain of sin. It did more than just release us from the domain of Satan and transfer us into the kingdom of His dear Son. It did more than just remove the wrath of God that was standing against us. But it also removes the enmity between us and God. The enmity. I didn't say enemy, I said enmity. It's a different word. Enmity is the condition of hostility. It's not a feeling. It's not something conjured up. It is a condition. A condition of hostility. A condition of complete animosity or a condition of complete antagonism against. In other words, because of our sin, we were enemies of God. We were enemies of God, and through the death of Christ, we become friends of God. That's the idea. And more than friends, in fact, we become actual children of God. Now, I want us for a moment to think think of that in light of a court. Think of that in light of a, a jurist uh, system in which you are standing before a court. You are in the courtroom. The judge is there. The case has been heard. You are found guilty. And the judge makes the judgment upon you 
based upon the payment of someone else, that you are now innocent. You are innocent. And you, being the accused, have the right then, being the innocent person now, to walk out of the courtroom, and you never would see that judge again, hopefully. You'd never be in his courtroom again. He declares you innocent, you walk out, you go back to your life, never to see the judge again. But God does more than that. God being the judge, we being the guilty, we being the one declared innocent on the payment of Christ, the redemption price paid by Christ. God, the judge, does more than that. God not only declares us to be innocent, which is justification, by the way, He declares us to be innocent, but He makes us the once accused, once guilty person, now proclaimed innocent, declared innocent based upon the payment of someone else. He makes us His own children. The judge takes us into his own family. Now there are some who say that man is not an enemy of God. There are some liberal theologians, people in evangelicalism on the liberal bent will say that man is not the enemy of God, but Scripture is full of passages that clearly state the opposite. For example... Go to Colossians chapter 1. I'll just give you just a couple. Colossians chapter 1. Get there in a moment. Notice what verse 21 says. Colossians 1, verse 21, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. So this is the nature before God saves. This is who we are before salvation. Hostile, ekthros is the term in the original language. Ekthros, it's used some 32 times in the New Testament. It's all over the place. It's hatred. It was hatred. We were hostile, hostile to God. We were enemies of God. We were His adversary. We went against Him. Not only in action, but also because that's what our mind was doing. It it hated God. In fact, you might remember when we were studying through Romans, and we were in Romans chapter 9 through chapter 11, that classic section of Romans that speaks to the Jews being set aside for a moment so that we would be brought in. In Romans chapter 11 and verse 28, speaking of the Jews, it says of them, as regards to the gospel, they are ekthros for your sake. As a, for, for the sake of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. They're enemies of the gospel. They're enemies of what God has, is doing so that God is drawing you in and saving you. So when you look at Colossians 1 and you think about it, they're not simply some kind of special case that Paul's writing to the people in Colossae and saying, hey, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. You Gentiles who were outside the covenant promises of God in the past, you somehow in this special case were the enemies of God. No, The Jews were considered enemies of God for the sake of the gospel. 
for the sake of us hearing the gospel. This is the case. By nature, all people love sin, and to love sin is to hate God. This is what Paul is saying. You're engaged in evil deeds because God and sin are at war with each other. The father of lies is at war with our glorious father. And so the person who sides with sin is standing against God. That's the whole point Paul's making. He's saying, listen, this is who you were formerly. This was your life. This was your direction. This is who you were by nature. Back in chapter in Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, he says you were hostile. The natural mind is hostile to God. In other words, the mind that is not seeking God at all, that has no desire in the things of God, that God has not drawn to himself, is hostile to God. The natural mind hates God. In fact, it's interesting, back in Luke, Luke chapter 19, there's a parable that Jesus is saying. Right? Zacchaeus is converted. Zacchaeus is someone who repents, pays four times the amount that he has defrauded anyone. Jesus says to him in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And while they were listening to these things, not just Zacchaeus and people that were there, but the Pharisees are always trying to follow Jesus. He goes on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he says, a certain nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and return. Of course, Jesus is talking about himself in these parables. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10, 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens, but his citizens hated him. Not talking about the the 10 that he called the 10 slaves. These are just citizens of the country. They hated him. He sent a delegation and they sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. And it came about when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him in order that they might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten ten minus, ten minus more. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in very little thing. I give you authority over ten cities. And the second came and said, your mina, Master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, you are over five cities. And another came saying, Master, behold, your mina, which I kept, I put it in a handkerchief because I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you not know that I'm you? Did you know that I am an exacting man taking up and, not, and lay, taking up what I did not lay down, reaping what I did not sow, then why did you not put the money in the bank and have come? And I would have collected it with interest. And he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him, give it to the one who has 10. And they said to him, master, he has 10. I tell you that everyone who has shall more be given 
but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Enemies, ekthros, those who hate me, those who hate me. He, see, the whole thing there is, he's not, he's not saying to that one who, who was unfaithful, who was his slave, hey, you're out. No, he's being judged for what he did, his actions. But those who hated him, the ones who said, we're not going to have him rule over us. He says, those, take him out, slay him in my presence. I have nothing to do with them. Of course, he's talking about the Pharisees. Talking about those who didn't want him to rule over them. They were haters. That's the condition of all people without Christ. That's our condition. Even though people often try to hide themselves from the truth of that. You know what I mean. There are people who say that they would never rail against God. Oh, I love God. I, I think God's wonderful. I think we all ought to serve God or serve whatever. I mean, we hear it in our political people all the time. I serve God. The reality is they will not submit themselves to God as king. They will not submit themselves to God as Lord, as master, following him. And if we will not do that, then we are actually hostile toward him, even though we think we're not. We're ekthos. We, we're haters of him. So it's easy to see in Scripture that man is hostile toward God. The question is, is God hostile toward us? God hate us. And the answer to that is yes. We can also say, that his hostility, fortunately, does not minimize the reality of his love. In other words, his love cannot be diminished simply because he is hostile with sinners like us. There's a whole lot of preachers today proclaiming God's love, saying God loves people, God loves people. But there aren't many today teaching on the subject of the hostility of God toward people, that God is hostile. Or people, but the Bible's full of places that talk about the wrath of God. In fact, the Bible says that He's angry with the wicked every day. Just listen to Psalm 7. Psalm 7, beginning in verse 11. God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. Wet, not W-E-T, but W-H-E-T. Just means to, to sharpen it. He'll make it ready. God will make his sword ready. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared his, for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. God is angry with the wicked every day. It says the same thing in the New Testament, Right? Romans 11, verse 28, that the Gentiles are considered hostile for the sake of the God, or the uh, Jews were considered hostile for the sake of the gospel. That's how God saw Israel in the day 
in which he set them aside in order that we might have a relationship with him through the gospel. They are enemies. And yet in relationship to election, in relationship to God choosing, they are loved. And so you can see the two attitudes of God at the same time. In a sense, there is a love for them. In another sense, he is their enemy. So not all the hostility comes from us toward God. There is a hostility in which God has towards sinners. And so since there's a clear reality of hostility, there has to be something that makes peace. Since there's hostility between from us to God and there's hostility from God to us, there has to be something that will make peace. And the way of peace came through Jesus Christ who died in our place. So turn over to Romans chapter 5 just to hear how the Apostle Paul puts it. Romans chapter 5. Read verse 10. For while, for if while we were enemies, we were what? Reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We are again reminded right there in Romans chapter 5, of the reality of the resurrection and return of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19, or verse 18, beginning now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, what is that? That is that there is that the hostility between God and man can be has been removed by Jesus Christ. And so when we think about the atonement, the actual act of Christ on the cross. God sending His Son in time to enter into our realm, the, crea- the realm in which He created, becoming the, the God-man, and Him going to the cross through His death, Christ reconciled the world. Now that's where we get confused at times, the world. Because some of these verses seem to indicate that there's a universal reality to this reconciliation or a universal reality to redemption. This universal reality to the idea of the atonement. And this would be one of those places where someone might turn and say, see, he's reconciling the world to himself. Does that not mean that Jesus Christ, when he died, that he accomplished that reconciliation, that peace between God and man for all people in a universal way. And the reality is, as we will see in our times as we go forward, because I don't want to get into all those passages tonight, but 
just to simply say that what is meant here is not universal. It is not that Christ reconciles all people without exception. In other words, that everybody and anybody and everybody without exception are reconciled to God, but rather it means that all the world without distinction, without distinction. In other words, there are some being drawn by God, some reconciled from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. Not without exception, but certainly without distinction. So God actually and not potentially reconciled us, the elect, to himself by putting his son to death in our place. We can remember Isaiah 53.10, right? It pleased him, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Pleased the Lord to crush him. Pleased God in reconciling the world to himself, those without distinction to himself, it pleased him to crush his own son for us because it's through that reconciliation that we have a relationship in which there is no enmity between us and God. So when we think about reconciliation, we, we can think of friendship. And think of a friendship that was lost, a friendship that we once had with God in Adam, as he walked in the garden, walking with God in a perfect relationship prior to the fall, and that relationship now being reestablished with God through Jesus Christ, there is reconciliation. So whereas redemption frees us from the bondage of sin, reconciliation reestablishes that personal bond between us and God. It removes the hostility. It removes the hostility. Now, when you think about it, if it was universal in the sense that it was for everybody, then how could God in any kind of way judge anybody if there's no hostility between anyone and God? It seems rather counter to the very word of God, let alone counter to the very character of God, that he would judge those in whom he is now not simply a friend, but a family member. Reconciliation reestablishes that personal bond. It has removed the enmity between us and God. Now, I, I, I want to highlight just one more thing when we think about reconciliation. Because while reconciliation is the reestablishment of that personal bond between us and God, It is a bond much like redemption. It is a family bond. It is a family bond. Um, In other words, we are part, through the death of Christ, we are part of the family of God with Christ, as Ephesians tells us. We have an inheritance in Christ. Ephesians tells us we are heirs with Christ. Christ. We are fellow heirs of the inheritance that is in Jesus Christ. We'll just read this because it, we need to hear this in our ears over and over and over again. Ephesians chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here's the family relationship in Christ. 
He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. That family relationship. It's not just a relationship with Christ. It's a relationship with God the Father. He predestined us to this adoption according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. In Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to the kind intention which He purposed in Christ with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times. What is that? That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will to the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. You see, it just goes on and on and on with this family relationship that we have. We are in the family of God. So we can conclude that when we are granted actual reconciliation by means of the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, through the actual death of Christ on the cross, in that reconciliation we begin to see the groundwork of all that God has in store for us as His children. Through the forgiveness of sins, we begin to see all that God is doing for us as those who are His. That pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption, verse 14, of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. God is seeing the redemption and looking at the reconciliation and that being carried out to its fullest fruition in time as we are glorified in Christ. Not only being glorified now, but ultimately fully glorified in Christ in the day when Christ returns. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. It says, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. What a great promise to us. There's nothing that we've seen. There's nothing that we've heard. There's nothing that we can even imagine that comes close to what God has prepared for us in Christ. We know some of this. We know some of what God has prepared. We have the Spirit of God. We know some of it. Right? Like 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, tells us a little bit of it. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. What did He reveal? Some of those things that have, that, that, that have been prepared for us who love Him, as Paul is quoting in verse 9 from Isaiah 64. 
but there's a whole lot more to come. There's a whole lot more that God has prepared for us who know Jesus Christ, having been actually reconciled to Him through Jesus Christ. So all the glory, all the glory goes to God when it comes to reconciliation. All the glory goes to God when it comes to redemption. Because He's the one who reconciled. He's the one who redeemed. We're the ones who needed it. We didn't reconcile ourselves. We didn't remove the enmity between us and God. He removed it. He took it upon himself. God reconciled us to himself. It was not a potential reconciliation. It was actual. It was actual when Christ died, when he was buried, and he rose again. It was an actual redemption. So when we think about the atonement, when we think about this idea, we, we, we can't get locked into these, these theological arguments that seem to have gone on through the decades in reference to whether it's limited or unlimited. Can I get into that? We have to look at the, the idea of the atonement from the reality of how the Bible describes what exactly did Christ accomplish when he died on the cross. And these are actual things. These are not perpetual uh, potential promises. These are actualities. Just like the Old Testament showed us about redemption. Redemption was always actual. It was always real. It was always an actual price for an actual person that was actually freed Reconciliation actually removes the hostility. Well, there's another term that we need to look at. We'll have to save it for next time, but that's the term propitiation. Propitiation. And we'll get into that next time because this is another term that is confusing to people and yet shouldn't be confusing to us when we think about the atonement. Why am, I, why am I even talking about all of this? Because it comes up in conversations that you have with other individuals. It comes up in books that you read. It comes up in theological realms in which you interact with that you maybe don't even know you're interacting with. And you're talking with someone. And we go around saying in our evangelism at times, Jesus Christ died for you. Well, I don't know that. I don't know if Jesus died for them. I know that Jesus died for sinners like them. And certainly I can say that with clarity and with biblical understanding. But I don't know if Jesus Christ actually died for them. That would be to say that I know they are elect. I don't know that. All I know is the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who will believe. And the Bible says, you should believe. So I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise of God is if you believe, you'll be saved. Understanding that without God, there will be no belief. And so it affects our evangelism. It affects our understanding of who Christ is. It affects our understanding of the gospel. So this is why it's important for us. This is why I want us to be clear on these terms. Because they explain not simply for whom did Christ die. They explain even more so actually what did Christ accomplish when he died. And that helps us understand. 
But the reality of the atonement, as you will see when we're done, is that it actually is an atonement of all people without distinction, some from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and not all people without exception, which only makes our salvation even more shocking that God would choose us at all, any of us. Well, I hope that's helpful. I hope it kind of gets our juices flowing again and gets us back into the thought process of where we were when we left last time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for tonight. We thank you for this just short look at at these ideas, these theological realities that your word clearly states for us. Lord, there's much been written over the years trying to explain these things, and I'm certainly not under any illusion that all the questions will be answered even in our time together. But we know that you're a sovereign God, that you have given us every answer we need in your word. Help us to rest there. Help us to rest there, especially when we think about loved ones, those closest to us and those even yet who do not believe Lord, we know that we didn't believe upon you without your mercy and grace drawing us to yourself, and we know no one else will either. Help us just to be faithful to share the gospel. Trust it. Trust what you will do with it. Trust that you are doing what is best, what is honoring to you and glorifying to your name above all things. And help us proclaim it with great fervor that you might be glorified in it all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.